Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Mother's Day, May 8th, 2016, 34-year-old Chris Fowler set out on the Pacific Crest Trail, a 2,653-mile hike stretching from Mexico to Canada. Chris's journey took him through the desert of California, the heights of the Sierra Nevada mountains, and the thick forests of the Pacific Northwest. But on October 12th, with less than 400 miles to go on the trail, Chris, who had stopped in Packwood, Washington for supplies, set off to resume the PCT near White Pass in the Cascade Mountain Range with a storm moving in. People would later claim the storm was one of the biggest Washington State had experienced in decades. The storm was so intense that it brought snow to the high mountaintops of Mount Rainier and the surrounding area. As other hikers left the trail to wait for better weather, Chris set off into the dense Washington wilderness with the storm on his heels and seemingly vanished into the thick underbrush of the Pacific Northwest. This is the Missing and Unexplained Podcast with me, Tyler Hooper. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think that he probably continued to hike and, um, you know, whether it was, I mean, there's a lot of snow too, whether it was an avalanche, whether it was a tree well, um, one of those hunters tents that we came across was occupied. There were two hunters there, and um, I think a lot of people were hunting bears, but as we approached that hunter's tent, hanging on a tree outside that tent was a huge mountain lion that they that they had shot, or a cougar, they called it, but um, I mean, I don't know, just the, a lot of different stuff out in those forests. Kathy Tarr is the executive director of the Fowler O'Sullivan Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing assistance to families of missing hikers. I came across Kathy and the foundation while researching Chris's case. I was immediately intrigued by both Kathy and the work the foundation is doing. While talking to Kathy, I also learned of another hiker who's gone missing on the PCT. 25-year-old David O'Sullivan traveled all the way from Ireland to hike the PCT in 2017. Kathy explained to me that her passion and connection to the hiking world was a strong motivator in starting the foundation. 
With the foundation, Kathy and her team have been able to investigate both Chris and David's cases thoroughly. So I was visiting my son in Phoenix, and I had I was on all the PCT Facebook pages, um, only for the fact that I, too, was going to hike the Pacific Crest Trail only a couple of days after David, actually. Um, but two weeks before my hike, um, start date, I ended up being in a car accident and broke my sternum. So I wasn't able to do that, but I was still following the hikers on the PCT pages. And I saw that there was a four-day search going on for Chris Fowler up in Washington. And I thought, oh, I have time. So I went up to Washington to, um, you know, to lend a hand. And we did. We searched for Chris for four days, and uh, we didn't find him. So everyone went home, and then uh, I said, well, you know what? I'm still here. So I began to search for him on my own using maps and uh, systematically, again, with the information we had at that time, searching for for Chris. Um, unfortunately, the information changed, and that happens a lot. That's why we like to investigate as much as possible before we even set our foot on the ground. Um, but I was searching for him, but then it began to snow, and once it snows in Washington, you're done. <laughs> There's nothing more you can do. It's going to be snow for months. But while I was up there searching for Chris, I began to see other missing flyers for David O'Sullivan in Southern California in Idaho which was interesting because my daughter lives at the foot of, of the mountain in Winchester, only about 30 minutes away. So when I left Washington, I went to visit my daughter, and I said to her, I said, you know, I'm just going to drive up to Idaho to see if there's anything I can do to help find David. But unfortunately, when I got up there, I couldn't even find a missing flyer report. And I began to ask questions, and I began to realize that nobody was searching for David. And it was like the saddest thing ever. And um, as as the universe brought us together, it just happened to be the same time that these Sullivans were flying in from Ireland. And that's when I met them. And so I told them that I would do what I could to try to find their son. And at that time, it was just me. But then I, I reached out to um, the Irish Outreach in San Diego. That was amazing. They came out in... You know, dozens of them came out, and we would go along and search for clues. You know, if somebody falls, they might lose their glasses, a hat, a hiking pole. So we were looking more for clues. So if we can find a clue, that's going to get us closer to David. Um, and we did a few searches that way. And uh, we didn't find anything to date yet. <laughs> Absolutely nothing of David. David O'Sullivan decided to hike the PCT after reading a book about it. Like Chris, he was in a bit of a transition in his life. He had just finished college and hadn't nailed down a career yet. David began training, lifting weights, walking with a heavy backpack, and climbing the highest mountains in Southern Ireland when he could. On St. Patrick's Day, 2017, his family had a party for him, and he departed Ireland on March 20th and started the trail two days later. David's mother, Carmel, says that the trail for David was to be a grand adventure. And the opportunity came, and um, he decided to go for it in 2017. He um, had left college with a degree in English and philosophy, and he had an immediate course as well, and he hadn't decided exactly what direction he was going to take his career. So he thought a break like this would be good, give him time to think, and, you know... 
uh, he had no commitments, he had no girlfriend at the time, and he had no financial commitments, so he thought, this is a good time to go and then come back and start uh, working at first. So um, he announces at home to us about September of 16, and maybe about 8 o'clock in the evening, and I'll be honest, I didn't sleep a week. I thought it was the maddest craziest idea ever. You know, I didn't know anything about the PCT. I didn't know anything about hiking, really, but I just thought it was just to go hiking for maybe five, six months, you know, on your own, possibly, and um, going from Mexico to Canada. I had never heard about it. But anyway, he was determined he was going to do it, and I suppose I spoke to his father, my kind husband, and my other son died about it, and they said, look, it's an adventure. It's something he wants to do. Carmel says David was enjoying his time on the trail. Much like Chris, he was relishing in the experience and being in the great outdoors. In emails home to his family, David confessed that the trail was harder than he thought it would be, but that he was absolutely loving it. No, he was totally enjoying it. And he actually saw from eczema. And um, I remember remember one of the emails that he sent to me. He said, oh man, he said, you wouldn't believe it. They're totally cleared up. He had it in his hands only. And he said, I was kind of a bit worried about that, you know, but he said, they were, it was totally cleared up. It, it was just like they were gone, you know what I mean? I thought, with all that, you know, the, 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 maybe too much water here, so maybe it's washing too often, maybe, you know, the, the soap's too harsh or something. And I suppose he was probably washing there every couple of days, whatever chance he got. But anyway, he was in great form, and he was talking about the dog, and, you know, everything was, everything was wonderful. I couldn't say other than that. And he was having to make, make miles, he was having to make a few more miles a day extra because that's what the very initially, presumably it takes you a while to get your legs apparently. When you, when you start off, I mean, you might only get five, six, seven, ten miles a day apparently starting off, but you increase as you get stronger, I suppose, and your legs get stronger, you know? In early April, David arrived in the California mountain town of Idlewild a popular spot for PCT hikers to stop and rest and recharge. On April 7th, David checked out of the hotel he was staying in and seemingly vanished. Since that morning, there has not been a confirmed sighting of David. The mountain at that time was quite treacherous with snow. Um, There were reports from hikers of falling head over heels down a slope, taking two hours to get back up. Um, One gentleman had hurt himself and tried to get better, but within a couple of days, he had to call search and rescue to come get him. Um, there is a rescue just a couple of days before this, and this is typical. This is a mountain that is not to be messed with. Um, very steep slopes, um, sometimes going across a section, a five-mile section called Fuller Ridge. Um, a hiker might start coming down off that ridge too soon, and people begin to follow that person and find themselves lost or not on the trail. And so a lot of hikers will use an app called Gut Hooks. And this is something that if you pull this up, it will tell you if you're on the trail or if you're 50 feet to the right of the trail. And it kind of helps you get back to where you need to go. David did not have such an app. His phone was still only in Ireland um, service. And when he came here, he didn't have it you know, brought on to the U.S. service. So we had nothing to really guide him out there. So, you know, did he get lost in the snow because of of, um, wrong tracks going the wrong way? Did he fall? These are questions, you know, that we looked at quite hard 
and did a lot of investigation on David's case. Years later, just like Sally, Carmel continues to look for her son. She says the lack of response and the lack of urgency from local police when David first went missing still bothers her to this day. She said when they first flew to America to look for David, they were left feeling frustrated by how they were treated by law enforcement. And we knew he left the hotel, but there's about three different exits out of town to get back on the train, and he could have taken any one of them. And that made it worse than again, because we had no idea which one we, we should be searching, you know. And then there's little trails, off trails, and you know, other other areas, I suppose. But anyway, we were obviously pierced at this point, and... Um, the day after the search, we said we'd go back to the police station. And we, it was a different, completely different, um, there was no meeting because when we arrived, we gave our name obviously at the, the desk and we were told wait. And then we were told that the, the two people we wanted to speak to weren't at work that day, that's fine. So we were waiting to see what, the whole thing was out because, and then another inspector came in the door, coming to work. And he spotted us, and he, he'd met us at the previous meeting, and he said, look, I'll see what I can do for you. And he brought us into a room, and um, we were chatting for a few minutes anyway. And then he said, we said to him, we were looking for, um, there's apparently, there was a water, what's I, I, I call it, a water reservoir, and there's a camera on it, apparently, our, our search team told us. And everybody that passes, comes off the mountain, has to pass and it's on all the time. It's something to do with the security of the water, you know, the elements wouldn't strain to it, I suppose, that type of thing. And if we could get a look at the camera, the pictures on the camera, and, um, you know, we'd asked for this initially, I think maybe some months before that, but anyway, we didn't get them. But anyway, we, we asked them that day, and he said, oh, he said, I, I looked at those myself, he said, your son definitely hasn't done it. And we sort of said, well, look, you know, we'd like to have a look because we'd, we'd definitely recognise them. You know, in the dark with hats on them and caps on them and maybe coats and backpacks and, you know, people mightn't recognise somebody else. So uh, he said, I, no, 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 he said, well, I've searched those. He said, he's a hand star. They call out of it and I'll see what I can do. And next thing he went out wonder, and he came in a few minutes later and he said, come on, come, come this way with me. He said, oh, we kind of looked up card up and down card. And before we knew where we were, we're back out of reception. As Kathy dug into David's disappearance, she started to see for herself the logistical hurdles involved when it comes to searching for a loved one. It dawned on her just how much the families of the missing need someone to guide them to resources and through search logistics. It was at this time that I began to realize how much the families need someone to guide them. And so we kind of, we call ourselves family navigators. And we'll go in and we'll talk to a family and we will ask a lot of questions and we'll guide them. Do they need more information than what they have? Can we get them a Freedom of Information Act sent out to the jurisdiction to get more information? What is it that they need? Do they know anyone that used to hike? with their missing loved one that might be able to give us a clue on did they always camp near the trail, off the trail, things like that. So we do a lot of investigations with the families, which they are so grateful because what happens is search and rescue will go out to search for somebody when the sheriff gives them direction to do so. 
So they'll go out and they will search for someone pretty much until they are deemed not alive. And if they don't believe a person could survive as long as, let's say, two days because of the weather or six days because they had food or whatever information they have, once they feel that that person can no longer be alive, they will end their search. The sheriff will say, you are no longer allowed to search for that person. This is where the family needs help. And I don't know of many organizations that are out there helping these families at this time. So when I found the O'Sullivans, they were like, oh, my goodness, we have someone in this country that's going to help us because otherwise nobody else was going to. And so we did a lot of this before we became official, working with families and trying to help them. Because to date, I have not found a family yet who says, okay, thank you to search and rescue and then want to go home. They still want their loved one back. They still want to know what happened. And there's this thing called ambiguous loss. And that's when a family is stuck in time. They can't move. And they can't move forward until they know what happened to their loved one. And this happens a lot in cases. And it's not anything that, that is very pleasant to be in. You know, it's the first person they think about when they wake up. It's the last thing they think of before they go to sleep. Their whole life is just contained in finding their loved one. And if they don't have anyone helping them and they live in another country or another state, if they're not hikers themselves, then they don't know what to do. And so that's where we come in to try to help them. Kathy says her group doesn't just look for hikers. In fact, the foundation's first case was an elderly woman who drove out into the desert and was reported missing by her family. Kathy and her team were actually able to locate the woman's body months after she went missing, giving the family some semblance of closure. She says there isn't really a strict process on the cases they take. They might read about a missing person in the newspaper and decide they can help, or they might have a family reach out to them on their website or on their Facebook page. However, Kathy says the foundation will always be interested in searching for missing hikers on the PCT. Hello, nerds. Come listen to the History Nerds United podcast and let's make history fun again. We interview today's best authors, whether they are established Pulitzer Prize winners or someone debuting their first book. Let us show you that history is not a boring class you took in high school, but a place where the best stories come from. And we don't just cover history. We also love to chat about true crime, biographies, memoirs, and so much more. So head on over to History Nerds United and let us introduce you to your new favorite book and learn the story behind the story. History Nerds United. So if we actually, we can guide them in a way that we're talking to them on the phone saying this is what you need to have in order to create a search group and how to safely do it or we could go we have all of our equipment at this point and so we have radios we have um first aid kits um, we have orange vest hats whistles you name it whatever we can do to keep them safe we do a big orientation on safety and uh, we give them an area of search and each one of them has an app called gaia and it's a free app for certain amount of days so it's perfect for these um these searches so 
what happens is no matter where these searches go, they're being tracked. So when they go home, they send me the tracks, and then I put it on a map. And then I can see where everybody has been, and then we'll maybe move up the trail a little more. Or maybe they didn't get as far as I'd like them to that day, so we're going to get some people over there. And that's how we systematically will search for someone. Now, there are times when we have an area such as the desert where drones would be a perfect solution for this. And so we have a company in Utah called Western States Aerial Search. They are absolutely amazing. They are a nonprofit as well. They never charge a family, as we never do. And they'll come in um, after we investigate it. If we can investigate a case and get an area small enough for them to come in, they will come down from Utah and they will um, fly their drones. But they don't fly in real time like a lot of people do, and that's why people are not being found. They will come down with flight paths. And they will send their drones out for maybe 12 different flight paths in, um, in the uh, way of a lawnmower, up this way, then back, then up, then back. And they'll do that several times in different areas. They might even bring it in and change the angle of their camera and send it back out to the exact same um, area that they just flew. So, anyhow, so... Um, you know, our very first case we did as an as an official nonprofit, we actually found the person we were looking for using this system. So what we did was we investigated it. We contacted um, Western States Aerial. They looked at it and said, "Yes, we'll be down." So what we do is we pay for their expenses. We use them as a resource. They come in and they fly. With this particular person, we had almost four thousand images, and at times that can take months to look at. We are right now developing a team of image viewers, which is amazing. So when we have images come in, it goes onto a spreadsheet and everyone starts looking at images. In this particular case, I, I downloaded all the images to a Dropbox. I sent them out to my team. And by that night, we had found the person we were looking for. Um, it, was, it was a difficult case, um, but I'd say the family, um, we've not met them yet, but they have reached out to us and they are, like, beyond grateful. Um, it was their mother. Um, she was an elderly lady with dementia, and she had driven out to a dirt road in the desert, and they found the car, but they couldn't find her. And so we were very happy to be able to give this family their mother back. Ultimately, no one knows what happened to David. But Kathy, the foundation, and David's parents continue to search for him despite the likelihood of an unhappy outcome. Well, I'd say, you know, there's no indication at all that David was depressed or had any problems in that way. Um, he had finished college. He was a black belt in karate. He did comedy as a child. Um, he was a very upbeat type person. So, and this was his dream, as many of the PCT hikers. His dream was to hike this trail to Canada. So, and no indication in any of the emails he sent home that he was depressed or maybe he was over his head on this trail or anything. He was definitely enjoying himself. I would say, you know, the weather was actually fine. It was blue skies. There was no snow in Idlewell at all. But once you get up into that mountain, you're going to run into some pretty, um, some pretty bad snow on the trail. 
And once the trail is covered with snow, there are times when you're not sure if you're on the trail or you're not on the trail. So I would say, you know, you know, with David um, coming from Ireland, they don't have mountains as high as we have here. In the San Jacinto Mountain, the highest a PCT hiker would get on the PCT itself is 9,000 feet. The town down below, you know, it is a little over 5,000 feet. So you're climbing quite a bit. You know, you have that 4,000 feet, and, and it's a beautiful day in town, so you're not thinking elevation. If you're coming from Ireland, you know, you've not experienced this before. So I believe, you know, he went up and um, came into snow and maybe saw footprints and said, you know what, I can do this, and, and continued on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of indication that possibly in the area where a lot of hikers were falling and getting hurt, and, and that particular area could be definitely an area David could have fallen in. But um, I, I do believe, from my indications, that he probably fell more so than got lost. And I only say that because he had a full backpack of food to survive on, uh, it was a wet year, so we had plenty of water. Streams were running. So we had food and water and shelter. So if you get lost, you just set up your tent for the night, and, you know, you get a good day start the next morning. He had, you know, at least six days of food with him, which if you're lost now, you're going to start to ration. And I really feel that at some point, because it wasn't a whiteout or anything, that he could have found his way back to where he needed to be. I feel like it was an accident and he fell. So the question remains, what happened to Chris after he set off from the White Pass trailhead? There are a few theories on what happened to him. But before we get into that, I want to talk about some alleged and unconfirmed sightings of Chris. I talked to Sally about some of these alleged sightings after Chris was known to be at the White Pass trailhead. There was a, um, a bartender at um, the Green... Gosh, I know this stuff by everyday heart, and I can't think. What is it? It's right there. Green, Greenbrier, Greenwood, Greenwater, and Greenwater. I think it's called. Um, that's terrible. I I know all this stuff like the back of my hand. And she says that she saw Chris on the fourteenth. She's adamant about it. She's never changed her story. She said he came in and he was. He looked frazzled. He had a giant backpack. He was skinny, which they're all 
skinny and have back big backpacks at that point. They all look alike, honestly. But she said he sat down and she asked him his name and he said Sherpa. And she got him some water and she offered him a sandwich on on her and he said no. And she the reason she remembered he said Sherpa is because she she told him her trail name. And they laughed because it had something to do with two names that were in a movie together once. I can't remember what it was, but it's something that adamantly made her remember it. And she just said, I don't talk to a lot of my patrons because I'm a bartender. and We have a lot of hikers come and go, so I don't. She said, I'm just not that type that gets real chatty with them, you know. Um, but she said he was really nice and I could have kept talking to him. And she she said she went into the kitchen or went someplace, and when she came back out, she was gone for a little bit. She came back out, and he was gone. And um, so a lot of people don't think it was him. A lot of people think – I don't think she's – I honestly don't think she's lying. I've talked to her many times. She's a great person, and and um, she has never varied from her story, not even a little bit. I – you know, I don't know. I don't know if it was him or not. Um, and then there's another gentleman that says he saw him in Mazama at the store. There's a really cool little store. Actually, it's a big store in Mazama. And there's a goat's beard right there. And that was the last place he was mailing a package to. And when we got there, there was no package there. But the lady didn't make anybody sign. And she usually was the one that got the packages, but if one of her employees got the package for him, she doesn't know. So now, because of all of this, they, a lot of people have changed the way they're actually making people sign for their packages so they know if they were there or not, because if they got lost or went missing, you at least know their last known location. There's also more books in the state of Washington now, and along the PCT, there are more books to sign because of Chris because of this, um, you know, and me making them aware if there was a book to sign, we would have known his last known location. Why wasn't there a book at the store in Mazama? Had there been a book, we'd have known whether it was him. But the, the gentleman in Mazama store, and I actually met him in person, and he was very credible. Um, he says that there was a group of hikers in there, and then Chris seemed to be by himself, and when he checked out, he bought a Butterfinger and you know, something like that, just bought some snacks. He checked out, which Chris does eat Butterfingers. I mean, you know, millions of Americans do, but he does. Um, and he said to him, hi, my name is Sean. And Chris said, and the hiker said, I'm Sherpa. And he said, oh, that, and, uh, you know, exchanged a little bit of pleasantries. And then when somebody, when they were, I think we were out there because it was October 20. Yeah, they showed this guy the picture of Chris on a flyer. Um, Ravensong went there and showed him the picture. And he said, oh, he was here. I talked to him. I, he told me his name was Sherpa. And he couldn't remember the exact date. He looked at his calendar, and he thought he was there around the 22nd. And then later he thought maybe it was opening he said, I'm thinking it was closer to opening hunting season, which would have made it the 15th. 
also appears to be some credible sightings on the trail itself. One hiker claims he saw Chris near Laughing Creek, which would have put him several miles from White Pass. The one that I think is most credible is from Alex Witt. I don't know if Sally talked about Alex, but Alex was in that section uh, just north of White Pass um, at the same time Chris was. And Alex um, said that he thought he saw Chris the morning of the 13th as he was getting up. He, uh, he heard footsteps or someone coming up trail and he poked his head out of his tent and he said he saw Chris. He was pretty certain it was Chris heading north. And um, that would have been about the right time, about the right distance um, from where Chris would have been during that time. So that, that, that to me and along with a couple other through hikers that have who I've talked to about this think that that would have been a pretty credible sighting. So, so that would put him, um, according to that sighting, it would have put him about uh, I think it was about four miles north of that Laughing Water Creek trail crossing there. I want to be clear: none of these sightings have been confirmed to be Chris, including this next one. One of the more peculiar alleged sightings is from two bear hunters who claim to have interacted with Chris sometime around October 22nd. This is something I wanted to talk to Sergeant Briscoe about, the officer for Yakima County Sheriff's. The reason I wanted to talk to Sergeant Briscoe about the bear hunters is that when I asked people that I interviewed about them, there seemed to be hesitation to go on the record about it. I got the impression that most people involved searching for Chris thought something was really odd or off about the bear hunters' claims. Like something didn't sit right. I didn't talk to the hunters myself, so I can't really say for sure if I think they actually ran into Chris, but it seems most people, including Sally, think they aren't that credible. And then there were the bear hunters who said they saw him on the 22nd and spoke to him and described his clothes in great detail, which, um, you know, makes you question how do you, they said they saw him. He was walking up, and they thought, oh, no, here comes a hiker. He's going to yell at us because we're hunters. And instead, Chris said, how's it going? And they said, good. He said, what are you hunting for? And they said, bear. And he said, that's cool. And Captain said, have a good one, and kept on walking. He didn't ask for food, didn't ask for water. He didn't look like he needed anything. But they described his, the beanie he was wearing in his in his wanted or his missing poster and his pants with the side pockets and his backpack with the orange panels on the side, they um, gave, the one guy gave great detail after a two-minute encounter. So, I don't know, that seems questionable too because it's almost too much detail in a very short period of time. I mean, how many people do you meet and uh, a month later are able to give that kind of detail. So we've never been able to, even though they've been interviewed multiple times, the stories have changed a little bit. So bear hunter sighting isn't credible for us. Uh, it still could have happened. I don't know. There's These are all um, non-confirmed sightings. Some are more credible than others. I think the two people at Mazama and uh, Green Greenwater. Why didn't that sound right? Greenwater are more credible than the bear hunters. So what happened to Chris? As I mentioned, there's a lot of theories. 
Some I don't put a lot of credence to, such as that he was indoctrinated by a cult living in the woods, or that perhaps the bear hunters had something to do with his disappearance. But there are more likely theories, such as Chris had an accident while hiking and found himself in trouble in the midst of a storm. Here's David Wolf and Pickles outlining some more likely reasons for Chris's disappearance. Well, I think, like you said, the two most likely scenarios is, he, he, you know, something happened to him, you know, an accident, like he hurt himself or something. And um, he took a seat somewhere off trail and, and um, you know, the weather got him or um, uh, he succumbed to hypothermia or, you know, I, people also float around the idea that he, um, you know, intentionally disappeared, which I think anybody who knows Chris or um, has gotten really in depth in this search and, and understands Chris's personality knows that 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 scenario is probably very unlikely. Um, he wouldn't have left his family like that or left them hanging. Um, so we're back to the, uh, to, you know, something, something happened to him, some, um, injury or, um, succumb to, uh, weather or hypothermia, I think is, is what we're mostly leaning towards. Yeah. Just, just with all the, all the obstacles, if, if he did continue to, to try to hike and, you know, I, Everything that I see points to to that that he did continue to try to hike, and um, you know I don't know what if he I don't know if he picked up extra gear from when I saw him. Um, if he did try to get back on the trail, if he if he picked up some extra gear, that there's uh, been word that he you know he did pick some stuff up. He maybe got some extra gloves, maybe got um, just some extra stuff to make it a little easier to hike through that snow. Um, yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately, I think that he probably continued to hike and, um, you know, whether it was, I mean, there's a lot of snow too, it could, whether it was an avalanche, whether it was a tree well, um, one of those hunters tents that we came across was occupied. There were two hunters there and, um, I think a lot of people were hunting bears, but as we approached that hunter's tent hanging on a tree outside that tent was a huge mountain lion that they that they had shot or a cougar they called it but um i mean i don't know just the a lot of different stuff out in those forests that that make trekking across snow covered you know snow covered landscape pretty treacherous pretty pretty dangerous Uh, and i don't know what he's I don't remember. I'm, I'm sure that we talked about it, you know, just because just cause the timing of it. But I don't know what his experience was hiking through through snow and through that type of terrain. But, um, yeah, I think it would be difficult for, for just about anyone, especially someone on their own, just without, you know, someone. I guess it, it maybe it doesn't matter that he was alone, but this would be difficult for anyone to hike through that stuff. If the snow where he was hiking was anything like the snow where I was hiking. Um, I mean, sometimes it was like up to your waist. If you post, if your, if your foot doesn't stay on top of the snow and it slips down through it, you know, sometimes it'd be up to your waist in snow. Um, and that's if you can find the trail. That's if you're like on a good solid, you know, ground below the snow. So, One of the things I find myself coming back to when I think about Chris's disappearance is the storm he would have found himself in. 
This wasn't a regular fall rainstorm in the Pacific Northwest. This was a storm unhinged from a super typhoon in the western Pacific Ocean, which battered the Pacific Northwest with 100 mile an hour hurricane force winds. The storm dropped several feet of precipitation in Washington. Flood advisories were triggered and power was cut to thousands of residents across the region. As Amber mentioned in a previous episode, Chris did have some sort of emergency device, but the subscription hadn't been activated. It would have been really difficult if Chris found himself in trouble to call for help in the storm. Well, what the some of the search and rescue experts um, theorize is that the storm, that terrible, it was a typhoon coming out of Japan that hit, and it was a bigger storm than what they said. It started out with um, high winds and a lot of rain, and the higher elevations um, saw a lot of snow. Uh, there's a lot of controversy about that, but there's physical physical people, people were physically up there said there was a lot of snow. And it was, it lasted, I want to say it started at midnight or so. Again, there's different times. It started after midnight on the night of the 12th going into the 13th, and it continued on into the 14th. So it was a long time, and they theorize, several of them theorize he never made it as far as Chinook Pass. He never made it to Snoqualmie, um, which is after Chinook Pass. Most of them think he don't make, he didn't make it to Chinook Pass, and he he at some point whether it, whether he met with um, you know whether it was hypothermia, which would be why they might not found him because they tend to either crawl under something or they could crawl into something or they start walking in circles and get disoriented and get way off the trail or did he get hurt someplace fall and um, you know is someplace where you just would never see him. Um, those are the theories that at some point he met his demise along the way, probably with hypothermia. Um, it's hard to say, you know, there's other theories that say, let's say he was, again, he was always very resourceful and he was very determined. He, and, and, and not because I think Chris is the strongest hiker in the planet. I, I'm not saying that is how he made it to Mazama, but he's very resourceful and he was no stranger to hitchhiking. So if he did make it to Greenwater and he did get a ride from there and somehow ended up at Mazama because he had a package there and he got his package, that's the last closest stop. You're 20, I think it's less than 30 miles from there to um, Canada at that point. And he's still determined. He's, he's hell bent to finish that. It's like, it's like summit fever, if you will, according to all of the hikers. They are, they are, they don't care what they have to do to get there. You know, most of them would hitched around at that time because of the storm. A lot of them that he saw that last day made it there because they hitched around, got back on the trail at a much northern, uh, farther north location and hiked into the monument. Um, but he, he could have gotten on up there at Mazama and, and he made it that far north. And something happened to him up there. It was that there was a lot of avalanches happening at that time in that area, a lot of avalanche warnings and things like that. And so, um, you know, something could have happened to him there. Uh, I have always felt like he made it farther north again, not because 
he's um, he blazed the trail hiking the whole time. I think it's just because he is very determined and and very hard headed and very and he was just had that I'm going to finish in his brain no matter what. And his phone wasn't working, and you know he had still had a little bit of money in his pocket, so he wasn't losing his card. And he had his, he had supplies. I just think maybe he hitchhiked himself to these places, not really necessarily hiked the trail, though that's what he wanted to do. But after he got off the trail being soaking wet, maybe he did make this Chinook. Maybe he did make it. To, maybe he hiked all night. We he could have hiked. He's, he's been known before to hike at night. So he could have hiked, he could have left White Path at whatever time that was. He left at 4.30 in the afternoon and, you know, was pinged at 5.30 within five-mile range there and and hiked into the night um, and made it um, 18 miles or whatever it was. Uh, to Chinook or whatever the, t- whatever the mileage was and got off there made it down to Greenwater. I, I don't know, and I guess we won't know, um, you know, until they find something and we can figure it out. Sally said that when she talked to Chris on the trail, he seemed happy. Not like someone who was desperate or thinking of ending their own life. To me, that's another theory we can rule out. One thing I know for sure after talking to people who knew Chris so well was that he could be determined driven, and even stubborn. From his conversations with Amber and Pickles, it seems like Chris was hell-bent on finishing the trail. And to be honest, if I was Chris, I would have wanted to keep going too. Being only a few hundred miles from finishing a several thousand mile epic adventure would be way too tempting. I would want to push myself to the brink to finish what I started. Sally and David Wolf have made hundreds of bandanas with Chris's name on it to hand out to hikers on the trail. The hope is, is that someone will eventually maybe stumble off trail and find Chris. This seems like one of the most likely scenarios, that a hiker or a searcher goes off trail through the brush and finds Chris. At least, that's what we can hope for to bring Sally and everyone else some sort of closure. Um, Yeah, it's just going to take one person, maybe even in the same area that's already been searched, to, um, to walk 10 feet in a different direction. I mean, it really, that could be all it takes to to find him behind a rock or, uh, you know, buried underneath some bushes or something. I mean, the, the, the reality is, and, you know, we've all talked about this in, in our little search group that, you know, we're we're looking for for Chris. We know he's out there. So it's just a matter of of turning the right corner or, or looking off the right cliff to, to locate him. And uh, I, I think that the trail itself and everything uh, immediately to each side of the trail has been, has been scoured pretty well. I think the, the opinion is now, at least my personal opinion, is that he is off trail somewhere near the trail, um, but off trail, you know, at least a couple hundred feet, if not you know, a couple miles, which I realize is a big, big difference, but he's off trail somewhere. And I think he uh, either took a seat because he was cold or um, injured and had to take a seat for that reason. And um, we just got to, we just got to 
you know, take those that 10-foot trail off to this particular direction to run into them. And that's all it's going to take. We just got to keep, keep, keep turning, turning over stones. If you know anything about Chris's disappearance, please contact the Yakima County Sheriff's Office at 509-574-2500 or message Chris's stepmother Sally Guyton Fowler on Facebook. For those of you who have subscribed to the Patreon, thank you. If you haven't, please consider checking it out and supporting the podcast. I'm also donating 25% of all Patreon funds to the Fowler O'Sullivan Foundation until August 1st. As always, thanks for listening to the Missing and Unexplained podcast with me, Tyler Hooper. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.